Hello, my name is Petra Edgecombe and today we have two readings. One is from Romans 12, one, verses 1 and 2, and Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 10. The first reading starts with the heading of a living sacrifice. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. The next reading is from Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 10. Starting with verse 1, it's headed, Christ's sacrifice once and for all. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we come to God's word this morning, let's come before him in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and we pray that you might apply it to our hearts and minds now as your spirit works in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is worship? How would you define it? A vox pop on this topic in the United States in 2010 threw up some interesting definitions. One person spoke about paying respect to something. Another spoke about a personal way of expressing love or devotion. And yet still another defined it as being at church when you free yourself to do what you feel in that moment. It's a tricky term for our secular society to grasp, but it's just as slippery for Christians most of the time. 
And that's partly because the terms translated worship in the Old Testament often focus in on the temple where set rituals were performed. So as believers think about worship today, they often uh, adopt these Old Testament expressions and think about church buildings, which we sometimes term worship centers, and church services where set liturgies or worship are performed. More narrowly still, in the last few decades, the term worship has often been used to refer to the singing component of our church service. All of this makes worship seem like a fairly limited activity, a set piece once a week where I honour God. But in the New Testament, there are four main Greek terms that can be translated into the word worship in our English Bibles. But they are sometimes translated as serve or minister or be devout or bow down. Now, the common thread to this group of words involves a response of submission to God and therefore an exalting of God. And you see that such a response is not limited in scope, as the New Testament makes clear. So let's pursue this question further today. What is worship? God calls us to worship him, but what does that look like? What is worship? Well, as we seek to define it, Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 is a good place to look for a summary on the subject. So notice again what is stated. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Well, Paul includes three things within his definition here. Firstly, he teaches that worship requires a remembrance of God's past mercy. Secondly, that it involves an offering of my body to God. And thirdly, it involves an obedience to God's will in all of my life. So we'll consider each of these in turn before applying these truths. But firstly then, worship requires a remembrance of God's past mercy. Verse 1 begins with a very important therefore. It's one of the great turning points in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. The first 11 chapters of Romans, you see, focus on what God has done for sinful human beings. Well, chapters 12 to 15 that follow is what we should do in response, the practical application. And so Paul is effectively saying, well, God has done so much for you, now live for him. And so the living for him, the lives of worship which we're now to walk in, are driven, are dependent on what we've already received. So notice the key phrase in this regard, which is, in view of God's mercy. See, we are called to live lives of worship in response to, in view of, God's incredible mercy shown towards us. That is, that a holy God could be merciful and not punish us for our sins as we deserve. That because of his love, he might offer us forgiveness through the sending of his son, Jesus, who would live the perfect life that we cannot and then die as our substitute in our place. And more than that, 
that on the third day he would rise showing that his death had effectively paid for our sin in full. So it's because of God's great mercy that Christ came and that the gift of salvation can be offered. It's a gift of salvation which should so grip us that we now long to live a new life, a life of worship which honours our Saviour, Jesus. Now, some years ago, uh, Christine, my wife, and I spent a couple of weeks in England, and most of that was in London. And one of the things that we were really keen to do while we were there was to visit the West End and see a musical or two. Now, we got to see the famous Les Miserables. And if you've seen that musical or you've read Victor Hugo's novel, you will know that the main character is Jean Valjean. This man had recently been released from prison and he was looking for somewhere to stay. And that was no easy task because in those days in France, ex-convicts had to carry special identity cards. And so all the innkeepers were suspicious of him. They wouldn't take him in. And so he spends four days wandering the streets until at last one man took pity on him, a bishop. Valjean goes to sleep in his house, waits until the bishop is asleep and then goes around the house and collects all the family silver and then runs off with it. But the police soon find him with the silver, assume he has stolen it, and they take him back to the bishop's house where they knock on the door. But what happens next is life-changing. The bishop says, Ah, there you are, Valjean. How good to see you. I thought you'd be back. You must have come for the candlesticks. They're silver too. I meant you to have them as well. And then turning to the police, he says, Well, you didn't think he was a thief, did you? Oh, no, I gave him this silver. It's his. And of course, the baffled police go away leaving Valjean with his mouth wide open in disbelief. And he will never be the same again after receiving this undeserved mercy. And you see, the same should be true of us. Are you gripped by the mercy of God? If not, you will never truly worship him. An understanding of God's mercy is the fuel that energizes, that empowers our worship in all parts of our lives. See, true worship never begins with our own initiative. It's not about human beings trying to win favor from a reluctant, from a reluctant God. It's always a response to God's initiative in the sending of his son Jesus to be our savior. And so our worship flows out of a grateful heart which remembers God's mercy. Well, that brings us to a second answer from the second part of verse 1. Notice there, we're told that worship involves offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. We're told to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. But these terms, sacrifice and holy and pleasing, are references that allude back to the Old Covenant. You see, in the Old Testament, God called his people Israel to bring animal sacrifices to him in the temple. And these sacrifices were always intended to be a temporary provision. They were pointing beyond themselves to the one perfect sacrifice which Christ offered when he died on the cross. 
And so the cross put an end to animal sacrifices as Christ himself achieved all that those previous sacrifices had anticipated. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews highlighted in our earlier reading from Hebrews chapter 10. But notice in Romans 12 verse 1 that there is still a sacrifice that we're called to offer. The sacrifice of ourselves. See, in a sense, Paul is saying, don't bring a sacrifice, be one. In response to God's mercy, offer your body to him. Now, such a sacrifice is holy and pleasing to God, says Paul. And this is your true and proper worship. Well, this phrase, true and proper, in verse 1, it would be better translated reasonable or rational. Now, the Greek word here that Paul is using is logikos, and that's the word from which we get our word in English, logic. It implies that worship is connected with our minds. Now, that's really important to note because many Eastern religions state today that you need to disengage your mind to engage with God. And so people are encouraged to switch off with the help of bodily exercises like yoga or the repetition of mantras. You see, increasingly, we are elevating experience above thinking, feeling above the mind as well in our Western societies. As one writer has put it, ours is a culture in search of an experience, not in search of truth. In choosing a belief system, he writes, the one measurement that matters is the spiritual high that they give us, as if worship was something you snorted through your nose. Now, you see, that tendency has affected Christianity as well. Many people who come to church are looking for an experience. Now, for them, worship is primarily to do with feelings rather than the mind. But the Bible will not allow us to divorce the two like that. See, true worship will certainly involve our feelings, our emotions, indeed also our actions, but it doesn't begin with them. Worship firstly involves thinking because it commences with what God has done for me through Jesus. If I switch off my mind, I break the connection with the truth that should prompt my worship. And so worship is rational. But it can't just stay in the mind. That's the flip side to this point. The body also matters. See, Paul's use of the word body tells us that he does not view worship as purely intellectual. It's not just a mental activity or some mystical experience which is only inward or abstract. Rather, it's also about what I do with my body, how I live. It's about responding to God in holy living, in service. It's about what I watch with my eyes, what I say with my tongue, where I go with my feet. And so if I ask you the question, have you begun to worship God? I'm not asking you if you've had a tremendous feeling at some point. If you have, praise God. But I'm asking you if you have offered your body as a living sacrifice to God. Have you said in your heart, here I am, Lord. My whole life is yours. I'll do anything. Here is my job, my relationships, my talents. Use them for your glory. 
You see, until we have grasped this, our thinking about worship is faulty. It's always going to be less than the worship God intended for us. Well, thirdly and lastly from these two verses, worship involves obeying God's will in all of life. In verse 2, we are told, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If we are to worship God properly, we have to be willing to stand out from our society, our world, to be non-conformists. Now, that's not easy because anyone can sing with gusto on a Sunday and desire to honour God, but worship is not so easy on a Monday morning at work or on a Saturday evening at a party with friends who have no desire to live God's way. And therefore, a person's behaviour on a Sunday is no real measure of their life of worship. Well, what's the alternative? The alternative to conforming in verse 2 is to be transformed. And this comes from the Greek word that is the basis for our word metamorphosis. You know, the radical transformation of a tadpole into a frog or a caterpillar into a butterfly. These are the things that spring to mind as we hear that word. It's a complete and a permanent change. The old person is gone. They're now dead to the world's ways. They can't return to their old life if they wanted to. And so the call to Christian worship is a fundamental transformation of character and conduct away from the standards of the world and into the image of Christ himself. But how can such a transformation take place? Well, Paul's answer here in Romans 12 verse 2 is the renewing of our minds. This is because only a renewed mind can actually discern and seek to obey God's will. Now, Paul doesn't tell us how our mind can be renewed, uh, but we know from elsewhere in Scripture that it's a combination. It's a combination of reading God's Word and the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And so if we were to talk about the stages of a Christian's moral transformation, you could summarize it this way. First, our mind is renewed by the Word and the Spirit of God. Then we're able to discern and actually desire the will of God. And then finally, we're increasingly transformed by it as we live it out. So in summary, worship is a response to God's mercy that involves offering my body in obedience to his will. But if I was to define it a bit more comprehensively, uh, worship is a deliberate submission of our whole lives to God so that he is exalted in both our hearts and our actions. Well, that brings us to the application of these principles. I mean, what will this whole-of-life worship look like? Well, we don't have to wonder, because Paul outlines in great detail in the rest of chapter 12 and right through to chapter 15 how the Christian is to live in the letter to the Romans. You see, these first two verses of Romans 12 place the concluding chapters of the letter under the umbrella of worship. He's offering a worship checklist, if you like, throughout the rest that encompasses every area of your life. But this is not a long list of legalistic tasks to tick off, in case you're worried. I mean, worshipping God turns duty 
into delight, obedience into passionate pursuit, simple endurance into faith-filled hope. See, we need to exalt God in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, even through our longing for heaven. Because not only does the worship of God fill every moment of a believer's life, but it's also what we're heading toward. The book of Revelation has several descriptions of the redeemed gathered around God's throne, worshipping him. See, worship is not a temporary thing. It is our eternal response to our merciful God. One of the misconceptions about worship is that it's somehow a strange concept that we need to learn, that none of us are worshippers. But the truth is that God has wired every human being to be a worshipper. That's what Romans 1 tells us. Everyone worships something or someone. Worship is either directed towards God and is therefore true, or in the wrong direction, and it's called idolatry or false worship. See, idolatry is anything other than God that we find our ultimate satisfaction in, or our comfort, or security, or joy. Whatever we love most will determine what we worship, what we focus on, what we honor, what we exalt. And so I hope you can see in light of all this, the problem with thinking that you can just worship God on a Sunday, say. To say I'm going to church to worship is about as redundant as saying I'm going to bed to breathe for a while. A Sunday service is just one small component of the worship which is your entire life. It's certainly a valuable component which God calls us to prioritize. We need to be spurred on to love and good deeds, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. And like an iceberg, 90% of our worship is unseen under the water, as it were, by those who gather with us on a Sunday because it's occurring throughout the rest of the week. And so offering my body to God as a living sacrifice has to be worked out day by day, moment by moment, because Christ wants Everything, all the keys of your affections, all your hopes, all your ambitions, all your heart, all your life. Worship is a deliberate submission of our whole lives to God so that he is exalted in our hearts and in our actions. Let me encourage you this morning to humble yourself so that you might exalt our great and merciful God. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy to us. Help us to respond, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, obedient to your word, so that we might worship you, not only with our thoughts and words, but with our actions, our entire lives. Help us to see that we are heading towards eternity where we will worship you with all those gathered around your throne forever. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name.
Amen.